What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the self-proclaimed Harriest Pixie at Pixie Planners, uh, Ian McDermott. Ian is my brother, all right? Ian is a veteran and is a Disney and Universal expert. When I say expert, like, let me be real about this. He he rivals me with his Disney geekdom. Like, you guys know how geeked out Jess and I get over Disney. This guy, like, just in talking to him, he's telling me stuff I had no idea about. Uh, and what that really does is allows him to create like a totally personalized experience for you. If you're planning that next vacation to Disney Universal, he can hit any Disney, anything, right? From the cruise lines, any Disney park. Um, and it really gives you the most bang for your buck, right? Because he is an expert on all the dining, all the hotels, all the travel, you name it. He can handle everything to just take that off your plate altogether. And like I said, uh, from one Disney nerd to another, like that's what I want. I want someone who knows all the tips and tricks and has all the inside scoop. Uh, he's he's just got it figured out. Look, he he proposed to his wife at Disney. That's how Disney dot this guy is. So if if that's your wheelhouse, man, check out Ian. I'm gonna put the links to all his stuff in the description. Um, and he's also on the website as one of our featured sponsors. Go over there and check that out. Show is also always brought to you by TravisCrutcher.com and TeamHopeLifters.com. TravisCrutcher.com obviously is MySpace on the internet. Uh, so go over there and check that out. Check out the podcast page. Check out the speaking engagements page. Check out one-on-one -on -one success coaching. If that's your thing, group coaching, anything you want, you could check it out. It'll be there. And then go over to Jess's page, TeamHopeLifters.com. That's her space. If you want to get your fitness on, you want to get your hope lifted, check her out. All right. Today's episode, folks, I am super, super stoked about. Um, I have on Dr. James Hart. I don't know how to sum him up except for like brain wizard. Uh, he is seriously one of the most fun guests I've ever had on the show. The guy is just, he's dedicated 40 years of his life to researching biofeedback, okay? Um, he tells the Genesis story of how he got into it, which is a fascinating story. And one of those ones that he told me on the pre-show, I'm like, you've got to tell that story because it's just so good. Uh, super engaging, super smart, super fun guy. He He's really doing a lot of awesome work with biofeedback. He's worked with folks like Tony Robbins uh, to help them key into those alpha waves that I bring up on the show quite a bit. You guys have heard me talk about that and geek out about it already. So, But this guy's a wizard. He knows it all inside and out. Awesome dude, awesome conversation. And I hope you guys enjoy this special bonus episode with Dr. James Hart. Five, four, three, two, one. Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, Go and drive, love. Nice to be in orbit. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. All right, folks, here we go. I am super stoked today. As I told you guys in the intro, I'm here with Dr. James Hart of the BioCybernaut Institute. That is my new favorite thing to try and say 10 times fast. How are you doing today, sir? <laughs> Wonderful. Happy to be with you. Oh, I am so excited. I'm telling you, like, our pre-show was the most fun I've ever had on a pre-show in my life. And, and I'm going to be transparent and totally candid with you. When I read someone's credentials that are yours... And I'm going to do a pre-show with him. I'm, I'm kind of expecting Ben Stein. And instead, I got probably one of the most exciting people I've ever talked to. So like, it was awesome. And I've, <laughs> I've been looking forward to this like crazy. So I know a little bit about you. Why don't you tell the folks who you are, what you're about? And I really want to hear how you got into biofeedback in the first place, because that's such a cool story. Oh, absolutely. Fun to do. Okay. Well, I am uh, Dr. James V. Hart. Um, go by Jim. 
and uh, I'm the uh, founder and president of the Biosovereign Institute, Inc., Biosovereign Institute of Arizona, Biosovereign Institute of Canada, and Biosovereign Institute Deutschland. We have a center operating in Germany. The Canadian one is in, in process of moving from Victoria, British Columbia to um, Bray Creek, Alberta, and it got kind of like frozen because of the COVID shutdown. So right. we have two functioning centers, one in Sedona, Arizona, and one in Bavaria, Germany. And so um, I am a brain scientist. I've had to become an international businessman. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, a kid in a candy shop uh, because I have all, I've created all this technology for exploring consciousness, which for me is like the coolest thing to do. Right. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite cartoons. Uh, I could actually, you know, I have cut out of a newspaper. It's uh, Bob or Rebop. It's not as popular as Peanuts, but um, it's a four frame, and it starts out with a guy uh, in a, a, a sport coat and a tie climbing a steep mountain. Is High, hanging away from his chest because he's climbing so steep. He's in search of Baba, the sage of the West. And then second picture, he reaches this ledge and there's Baba sitting on a blanket in the lotus and his cave is behind him. And uh, he says, oh, Baba, I'm so concerned about the problem of drugs in today's society. And the third picture is Baba sitting there with a dotted empty balloon. He's reflecting. And in the fourth picture, Baba speaks and he says, the only way to solve the problem of drugs in today's society is to improve reality. Ooh. And, and so, uh, you know, people do drugs for usually one or two reasons. One, to uh, blot out trauma, bad experience, you know, go numb around it. Sure. Or to get high, feel good, you know, have ecstasy. And so the thing is that we teach at Bausabna, brainwaves rule and so any experience you're having, you're having only because you have the brainwaves for that experience. Right. When with our technology, you change your brainwaves, you change your experience. And well, then let me ask you this, just yeah. based off that statement, do you find in your research and in your work, like broad stroke, that most folks don't understand that it's it's brain chemistry happening that gives you all the feel-good stuff? Like, because the, you know those drugs are hitting the same receptors that like sure. serotonin. Yeah. Do they not get that concept? I mean, uh, you know, I've tuned in uh, uh, various forums uh, where people are talking about psychedelic drugs and the cool experiences and the trouble, you know, the bad trips they have and you right. know, all of that. And nobody seems to understand that the drugs are producing whatever effects they're producing because they're changing brainwaves. Now, when I have a chance to tell people that brainwaves rule, depending on your brainwaves, you have this experience or that experience, uh, you have perceptions. I mean, you can only perceive the color purple if you've got the brainwaves for purple in the occipital lobes, the visual cortex of your brain. And if you have your eyes closed and you could turn on those brainwaves, you would see purple or blue sure, or yellow, sure. whatever the brainwaves are. But brainwaves rule, and whatever method you use to change your brainwaves, to change your consciousness, whether it's sex or drugs or meditation or rock and roll. <laughs> rock and roll, had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have the change in consciousness only when you produce a change in your brainwaves. And so in a certain sense, I'm ecumenical about the methods. Now, some methods have bad side effects. 
And so right. with brainwave feedback, there are no bad side effects. There's only you learn how to do naturally things that your brain is capable of doing. And then so, you have these cool experiences. You were, I mean, probably as passionate about this as anyone I've ever seen be passionate about anything, <laughs> but was not always the case, right? No, I started my academic career with a full scholarship in physics at Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh. And uh, I was going to be a particle physicist. I was going to be in a physics lab and work with accelerators and study the deep structure of matter. Ended up studying the deep structure of consciousness. Right. <laughs> How did we get there? Well, uh, it's a fall semester of my senior year, physics, Carnegie Institute of Tech. And I come out of the student union, and there's a big hand-painted sign right there where every letter is a different color. And uh, it says, Dr. Joe Camilla will speak on brainwaves and consciousness. And the time was, oh, that's just 10 minutes. And I didn't have a class, and it was Margaret Morrison College right across the tennis courts. And so I went. Uh, and Dr. Camilla was in transit from Washington, D.C., where, where his funding came from, back to San Francisco. And he was stopping off. Uh, to see a, a woman who's a painting and design teacher. And the only ones in the, the, to, in the class were her students. I was the only <laughs> one from the engineering college. None of the you know physicists, chemists, uh, engineers were interested in brainwaves and consciousness. So it was a fascinating talk. And I started a correspondence with Dr. Camille. And uh, Meanwhile, went to the library every spare moment and read everything I could about brainwaves, which had a long and interesting history. Uh, they were discovered by an Austrian psychiatrist uh, named Herr Dr. Dr. Hans Berger after uh, he, well, he was conscripted in, by the Austri uh, uh, Austrian army to fight one of their interminable wars in the Crimea. He was educated. He was a maiden officer, given a horse, horse was shot in a battle, fell on and broke his leg. He spent long months in a hospital. When he got back to Vienna, he called his family together to report on his adventures. There being no cell phones or ways to communicate. Right. Right. Halfway through his story, his sister stopped him, took him to her bedroom, brought out her Tagebuch, a day book, a diary, where she had written every detail of everything that he was now reporting. So he realized, oh, there must be telepathy. He had heard about electrical activity, you know, in Volta and France was studying um, electricity that could cause frog legs to jump. Right. So he right. goes, maybe there's electrical waves in the brain. And he went in search of them because he was looking for the source of ESP. He found electrical activity. Uh, he called it alpha because it was the first one. It's not the fastest, it's not the slowest, but it's the biggest. And so it was the first one to be found with his primitive equipment. And he spent 10 years researching this in secret. Uh, he learned, for example, that people who have trauma and anxiety have lower alpha than people who have higher alpha. But with his primitive technology, he couldn't make the ESP connection. We've made that at Biosabernon, but he, then he published, and then it became a sensation pretty soon. Every major hospital in any major city around the world had to have EEG equipment and a polygraph to write it out. Right. And so there was this big body of literature, and I read, I spent all my nickels at the library, you know, Xeroxing these articles, <laughs> a big stack of them. I'd read through this three times by the time I graduated uh, in the spring 
of 1967. And I jumped on my Triumph motorcycle, rode up into Canada, crossed the Trans-Canadian Highway, down I-5, got off at San Francisco, and showed up at Joe Camilla's lab and volunteered as the research subject. They had a big PDP-15 mini computer in an abandoned house at the edge of campus. This computer was installed in a bedroom. The feedback chamber was a closet with sound tiles on the walls and ceiling off the bedroom. And they put a few electrodes on me, sat me in a chair. There was a three-digit display, actually Nixie tubes, an old form of vacuum tube with the all digits in there. And depending on which pins you powered, a number would glow. Predates Pong, even a little bit. Yes. And there, on the corner, sitting on an orange crate, was a 12-inch uh, torn paper uh, speaker. And so when that, my alpha would get big, the speaker would fuzz out. And if I were an audiophile, I'd have been, you know, bummed out. But it, I wasn't. <laughs> and so I just went into the buzz, and it helped me uh, get rid of thought. And uh, it was the most fascinating experience I'd ever had. And I went back next day and the next day and got more. Well, uh, as I said, it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever done. I went there as a Protestant fundamentalist physics major, uh, you know, kind of also a math geek. And so I went back on the fourth day wanting more and they weren't doing any studies. But I'd learned a little how the lab worked. And Joe Camilla's California girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, worked in the lab. She and I had become friendly. So I went to her office and very politely asked if she'd take me downstairs, put a few electrodes on me, put me in the closet off the bedroom, and start the big mini computer so I could do feedback. She said, sure. So we do that. And I'm in the She starts the system, goes upstairs, gets involved with the work. So far, so good. So far, so good. She forgets I'm there. (laughs) <laughs> and then lunchtime comes, and with Paul Gorman, a total of 10 people, they piled into his VW camper van and went out to a 12-course Chinese lunch. And in course 11, she goes, oh, my God, <laughs> there's somebody in the chamber. <laughs> and so they all, you know, rush out of the restaurant, get into the camper van, race across town, run up to the building, and rip open the door of the chamber and interrupt the late stages of a most incredible genesis story, Genesis adventure. I had had out-of-body experience. I had ego disintegration. I was flying around the universe. Uh, I was meeting up with this corporate entities, consciousnesses that didn't have bodies. Now, this was a lot for a Protestant fundamentalist. Right, sure. And so then the doors opened and there's 10 people standing there relieved that, you know, I hadn't had a meltdown or whatever, because <laughs> it would be responsible to the university for, shall we say... be kind of a bummer for everybody, probably. Yeah. yeah, yeah. and so they're asking me, well, what happened? And as I start talking about these experiences, Paul Gorman, who had toured India last summer with his wife in that same VW camper van, would say, oh, that's a meditation experience. I'd say something else. He'd go, oh, well, that's a meditation experience. Well, as a Protestant fundamentalist physics major, I didn't have a clue what meditation was. And um, I, I learned pretty quickly, uh, uh, but it was, it was, I was so high that for the next three days when I walked around, it was like my feet didn't touch the ground. I was continuously out of body. But then the summer was over and I hopped back on my motorcycle, rode across that took I-80 this time. I didn't go up into Canada. And I went back to Carnegie Mellon and I registered for grad uh, student uh, course, a PhD program in psychology. They liked me. They gave me a full scholarship, and $2,200 a month uh, extra to live on. 
And I began doing a master's degree. I did a master's degree in, uh, I figured I was going to be dealing, dealing with weird stuff. Sure, so sure. I, I, I wanted a PhD in psychology to get somebody's stamp of approval so that when I talked about weird stuff, you know, I, I would be You wouldn't get labeled crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little nutty, maybe, you know, a nutty professor or something. But yeah. And so during that year, I wrote and won a pre-doctoral fellowship from NIMH, which allowed me to go back to California. I did all my graduate work, not at Carnegie Mellon, but at uh, UCSF the Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric uh, Institute in Joe Camilla's lab. And so, uh, you know, that was how it all began. But the, it, it, it came, I mean, I got diverted from studying particle physics, you know, in an accelerator lab to putting electrodes on people's head and, uh, you know, watching and coaching and assisting well, they had out-of-body experiences and ego disintegration and stuff like that. So There's probably an equivocal Ooh. amount of unknown, though, there, right? <laughs> what, you know, I, what I find fascinating about everything very wise Travis is that you know you were one of those people that just has like this I don't know if it's just ingrained in you if it's innate characteristic you've got I've got a little bit of it um you've got like this sure why not attitude yeah you know like you see this yeah, sign you're just... like sure why not <laughs> ride my motorcycle to California sure why not totally <laughs> switch you know areas of study and go for a doctor sure why not and then but what's crazy is like it doesn't stop there because you go way out there. You start studying with every kind of spiritualist, yogis, you name it. You've studied with them, and it's it's that sure why not, you know, that inquisitive mindset of like, I don't, I know, I don't know everything. This guy might know something. Sure, why not? Let's hear what he's got to say. Like that to me is brilliance because you can glean so much from so many people that way. And it's really, I mean, it's not only proven a lot of your points for you, but you've been able to show like. What you're doing generates breakthroughs that people doing like hardcore yogi level meditation don't hit in 30 years. Yeah. The truth of what you are saying actually raised goosebumps on my neck. (laughs) Truth indicator. Yep, yep, yep. And so talk about like some of those folks you study with, because I know you shared a little bit with me, particularly when it comes to like these big yoga breakthroughs that folks have um, and that. You know, when in, in studying with these folks and talking to them, like they kind of showed you more of their hand than they show most people and told them, like, you know, this isn't this is a rare occurrence. But these yeah. are not only something that's not rare, how you're doing it, but it's something repeatable. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll share a couple of stories uh, from India. I've been to India several times with the technology to study brainwaves and other physiological parameters on exceptional beings. Uh, and so. Uh, the uh, w- one of them was a, a firewalker, and uh, we uh, brought him in, measured his brain waves, uh, and he had newspaper clips showing that he could do firewalking. So we built a big, uh, long bed of burning hot coals. We had a Sikh doctor with a big turban, sure, burn specialist there, just in case something went wrong. And so I measured the guy's foot temperature before he walked across the bed of coals. And then I said, now, wait, I went around to the other edge of the bed of coals. And I said, okay, now, and this was all film. And he walks across the bed of coals, and I measure his foot temperature. And his his temperature had dropped by 2.7 degrees after wow. across this bed of coals. Not only did he not get burned, but his feet got colder. And I said, how'd you do that? And he said, well, I stayed up all last night meditating that it would be a bed of ice. <laughs> 
and talk about mind over matter. Exactly. Yeah. So that was that was pretty cool. Then we had another. Uh, now, the team I was with, they brought me in. They had they were making a uh, documentary on the tantric gurus of India, and they had been there four times before. They had an in-tourist guide. They had people going out into the villages, you know, to find exceptional beings and bring them in. I set up the technology in a big suite in a five-star hotel, the Oberoi Hotel in Bombay. It was owned at the time by the King of Nepal. And they would bring in these yogis. Well, this one guy walked in and he it was like this. He walked into the room. It was like the sun had come up. He had this beatific radiance and you just felt uh, calm and peaceful and happy in his presence. He had a childlike curiosity and uh, he didn't speak English. Everything had to be translated Hindi to English and English to Hindi. And he wanted to know about the technology. Well, what I my ticket to India was I had built the world's first microcomputerized brainwave analyzer and feedback system. It was based on the Motorola 6800 microprocessor. Uh, a 64-pin sort of mega chip, and uh, I, I, how do you explain a microprocessor to you know this guy? Right. So I said, well, it's like it has a brain. It has a little silicon brain in it. Well, he wanted to see the brain, and uh, the CPU card I had wire wrapped, kind of very fragile. It's a technology where you have a little tool, sure, put wires from pin to pin. And so I wasn't about to take it apart, but I had a spare in uh, conductive foam and CMOS. So the very sensitive static electricity. I brought out this big 64 pin chip and he's like petting the, <laughs> the brain of the, of the 6800. And then we wire him up and, uh, and start to measure his brainwaves. Well, it started out, he had a lot of alpha. And the, the, two minutes later, when the next score came up, the alpha had gone up. Two minutes later, it had gone up again, and it was going up and up and up. Well, after about a, a quarter hour of this, I'm beyond astonished because, you know, if you see a trend anywhere, whether it's, you know, your success in your workout or stock market, you know, if the trend is up, it'll jiggle. It'll right. go up and down, right. even though the trend line is up. This guy never went down. He only went up. Now, there were a couple of epics where the score on one of the channels was the same as the one before, but it never was lower. No decline. It's what mathematicians call a monotonic increase. Well, I'd never seen this before, not in brainwaves or really in, in anything. And so, uh, and he went on for over an hour going up and up. And then uh, he opened his eyes, a flash of light came out and he spoke something in Hindi. It was translated. He said, well, I'd like to go on but the light is getting so bright. If I go any further, I won't be able to come back and tell you about it. Wow. Now in yoga, they have this thing called Samadhi, a superconscious state in Zen. It's called Satori, but you can also have what's called the Maha Samadhi or the great Samadhi where you can have the state of consciousness and you exit your body. Well, I really thanked him for coming back because it would have been, shall we say, difficult to explain a dead body to the Indian police. Especially it makes it kind of hard to qualify your results. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I had my electrodes on him. We were plugged into my technology, plugged into a transformer, which was plugged into the 400-volt power they use in India. So a dead body would have been, shall we say, problematic. So I thank him for coming back. So it's, you know, I, I have, I've witnessed, I've recorded people going to the extreme edges of these uh, extraordinary states of consciousness. Now, here back in Sedona, 
we had a, a man, he's originally from Serbia, now uh, living and working in America. He was doing the Alpha One training. And on his fifth day of his Alpha training, he had a massive breakthrough into theta brainwaves. And uh, it was huge theta all across the head. And uh, he actually, you know, made a, a recording of what that experience was like. He's given us permission to share that. And so uh, uh, Dean Stoyage is his name. And so people can, given the appropriate feedback, they, they didn't even know him. He wasn't a meditator. But suddenly he breaks through into this very advanced state of consciousness because he was ready. Right. And so the technology can help people to maximize their potential. And so, so that, that, I think, is really what part of what you're going for with what you're doing. And, and so, like, I know a lot of my listeners understand alpha state um, and how, it, like, that's really kind of where you perform optimally. But mm-hmm. you touched on theta, and I know you guys study and work in delta as well, just for mm-hmm. everyone's own situational awareness. Kind of what is the difference between those three? Oh, well, uh, let's start with alpha. This was the first brainwave discovered. And alpha is the first training at Barcelona, like Brainwave 101. You, they, it's the entry point to any of the other trainings. Uh, and alpha is interesting because it's a bridge state. It, it bridges between the uh, normal waking consciousness, including peak performance, and bridges into ecstatic uh, states of awareness. Yogic samadhi is characterized by super high alpha all over the head, as well as the Zen superconscious state, Satori, is characterized by super high alpha all over the head. Now, you know there's a lot of differences between Zen culture, Japanese culture, and yoga culture. Sure. Uh, the, some of the yogis I worked with in India, illuminated beings, were covered with lice. It doesn't matter. They, in yoga philosophy, uh, all the world that we see and interact with daily is called maya, which is a Sanskrit word that means illusion. And they don't care about it. They are only interested in the inner world. Whereas in Zen, they strive for perfection of both. Right. All the trains run on time. They have these enormous clean rooms where they grow these gigantic silicon crystals dominate the world semiconductor industry. I mean, the difference between yoga, uh, between Indian and Japanese culture is extreme. And you can derive those from the knowing that brainwaves rule. You look at the differences of how the, the brainwaves of Samadhi and the brainwaves of Satori. For example, in uh, I didn't do this, but other scientists have studied Samadhi brainwaves. And uh, if somebody's sitting there in Samadhi, a yogi, very high alpha, and they take a pair of symbols and clash them together right next to his ear, he's unperturbed. The alpha doesn't even show a ripple. Really? They, t- they took a hot branding iron, put it in a fire, made it red hot, put it on the yogi's arm. The flesh is burning. The smoke is curling up. He's not perturbed. The alpha isn't. Then they took that arm, put it in a bucket of ice cubes. Most cold pressure stress. Most people can maybe take five minutes. Half an hour later, his alpha is just smooth. He's, he's not there. Right. This world that we, you know, live in and strive for mastery in doesn't matter when you're in this superconscious state. It's irrelevant. It's a lower level of awareness. Now, in Zen, in Satori, it's, it's very different. Same high alpha, but it, reactivity is different. If you take a little bell and ring it by the Zen monk's ear, the alpha will block and then come back. 
And then you ring the bell again, the alpha blocks and comes back, ring it again, blocks, comes back. Now, if I did this for you, if you were sitting there measuring your brainwave, ring the bell, after five or six times, your brain would go, oh, it's that little bell. It's right. not interesting right. anymore. It's not dangerous. And so the alpha doesn't block. Well, with a Zen monk and Satori, the thousandth time you ring the bell, the alpha will block. It's like the British poet, uh, William Blake, he said that when the doors of perception are cleansed, Everything appears to man as it is, namely infinite. I think that's where the doors of perception, uh, uh, where the rock group, the doors, got their name. And so every ring of the bell is fresh and new. And so brainwaves rule. And so the difference in the brainwaves is really enough to derive all the differences of uh, yogic philosophy and Zen philosophy. I got to point out why you're one of my favorite humans. You said all that and still tied in the doors. Like anyone can do that. I'm telling you, you can bring Jim Morrison into that. You're speaking my love language. <laughs> well, well uh, earlier we talked about ways of changing consciousness. I mentioned sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You got to have it in there. You got to have it in there. I think Jim, maybe Jim Morrison probably spent a lot of his time, you know, not in this world too, uh, but different ways, kind of the stuff we talked about first. Exactly. And so when, when folks like his, you know, I know when when you and I first made contact, I did a little independent research. And there's someone who is kind of in the same industry, um, but is like, you know, he's like a mindset ninja. And people may have heard of a guy named Tony Robbins, right? Mm -hmm. And I have to bring this story up just because of the way he talks about coming down there to Arizona. Um, I, if, I, if memory serves, he had just come back from Australia and got an invite to come down and do your seven-day alpha training. And, and he's a resilient dude, you know, he's not, he's no schlub, um, but he talked about it like he wasn't ready. Like he just wasn't ready for what was about to come his way between the, the isolation, the testing, all that stuff. Like it sounds really heavy, but the whole intent is to kind of strip, strip stuff away and get to like the root cause of things. Right. Mm hmm. And so one of the, without one of the, giving away all the secrets, like just what, <laughs> what is the seven? I mean, cause it sounds intense and you know, he, I think he, he was carrying for lack of a better term, he was carrying a little butt hurt with him because he missed his wife and wanted to hang out with her. And now he's stuck in this room. So, <laughs> well, she was in the training with him. Right. But they sure weren't together. <laughs> Not in the chambers. No, right. they were separate. They did amazing personal work. Uh, with each other in the course of the training. It was absolutely uh, breathtaking to behold somebody with that degree of uh, personal integrity and commitment to understanding, knowing the truth. Wow. They, 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 the two of them in debriefing, it was like absolutely amazing. Well, and that's one of the things too, that, you know, I, I have to point out just because I've done a lot of independent study of this stuff on my own. I, I strive to stay there as much as possible, particularly when I'm, I'm trying to create or trying to coach or counsel all that stuff. It really helps to try and stay in that, alpha state it coming to do what you offer is not like you better want it because it's going to test mm -hmm. you a little bit mm -hmm. yeah and so well at one point uh tony said in a video he said uh if you're not serious about personal growth he said don't bother right and 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 you know i, I appreciate that i mean I've, I've trained all kinds of people we've trained children as young as eight the most senior person i've trained was 101 and so, you know, everything in between. And uh, some people come because, uh, well, I'll give you an interesting story. We work with uh, an emotional hierarchy that has apathy at the bottom, then sadness and depression, 
then anger, then fear, then joy. And if you're if you have fear, but you're blocking it, you're not willing to look at it, what'll come out is anger. Or if you have anger issues and you're feeling anger, but you're culturally trained or you're not willing to or able to express it, it'll come out as sadness. And so uh, the very bottom is apathy. And we rarely get people in the training who are in apathy because you have to do stuff. You have to take action. You have right. to you know, book. You have to make deposits. You have to book reservations at hotels and airlines. And you actually have to travel and you have to get here. That's hard for somebody who's apathetic, but occasionally uh, somebody will bring along their life partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, who is lost in apathy. Last time this happened, it was a woman who brought her boyfriend. And for the first uh, two days, he's just in apathy. He's like, you know, leaning his elbow on the table and we're talking. Yeah, so what? Who cares? You know, like that. And on the... Uh, that right. hurts me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were other people in the training, and you know, so it was clear he was the outlier. And on the morning of day three, when the technicians are putting the electrodes on, he like kind of like wakes up and he goes, "I'm depressed. I'm feeling depression. Your training is making me depressed." And I jumped out of the chair and I went, "Whoopee! Hooray! We're making progress." You come up out of apathy, and now you're in depression. As you go further, you're going to discover things that you're angry about, and as you work through those, you're going to discover what you're afraid of. And then I'm going to say you're really lucky because when, in the safety of the chamber, you explore into your deepest fears, it'll always be your fastest growth path. And it will take you inexorably to the top emotion, which is joy. So, and, and bring, so bring it on. Man, first of all, like, <laughs> it's, it's probably one of the only environments where someone's like, yay, you're depressed. Like, what a great story. <laughs> but I think, you know, what you're saying is people just have a hard time working through that, don't you think? I mean, I think there's a little bit of a intellectual immune system, especially when someone else is like, hey, you're feeling this way because of that precludes them from taking any positive action for that stuff. And so when you guys are, are working them through these steps, like, and I'm sure it's drastic, but what is the difference between, especially this individual, like showed up apathetic to leaving, like when they start breaking down those traumas and all the hurts and hangups that got them to this point and dealing with them, like, is there, when they come out on the other side, are they like, are they aware of it? And they go, man, this was really oh, yeah. just sucking the soul out of me. Well, sucking the trauma out, and awakening, you know, all the positive virtues that have been uh, covered up by the traumas that have been there, but not available. Uh, there are three things that through uh, pillars that produce the literally magical results. You know, Arthur C. Clarke, the famous science fiction author, said, "Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic." And so we do magic at BioCyberNet. Right. <laughs> sufficiently advanced technology and has three elements. There are three pillars uh, on which the results uh, depend. One is the patented ergonomic technology. Number two is the also patented protocols or training methods. It's simple. You know, we do a seven consecutive day training. Would not work if you came one day a week for seven weeks, because in between, it'd be like if you were a general and you had a breakthrough and you went back to camp and you partied for a week and then came back, the adversary, which in this case is the ego, would have put up reinforcements and tank traps. and Totally you know, lose the initiative. You'd lose the initiative. 
So the protocol, and then that's just one example. We do consecutive day trainings and, you know, there's no time limit. We don't say, oh, your your time is up. You have to leave now. We have the next person. No, you, you, whatever it takes. If you if you have a breakthrough and you're, you know, uh, incredibly happy or you're crying because you realize that you were sexually abused as a child and this awareness just came in, it, we give you as long as it takes and there's and we we confiscate cell phones and watches at the door, return them at the end of the day. Right. But we right. create an environment outside of time. The famous Zen master Suzy Hiroshi said, "Time is the basis of fear." Think about it. Are you in trouble now? No. Well, why are you afraid? Well, because at some time right. in the future there might be something, and that's what I'm afraid of. Okay. So be here now, Ramdas would say. And Ramdas also said. If you want to live high, you have to live outside of time. Not ignorant of time. Time is like a river and it's flowing over there. And, you know, you can catch an airplane, but you don't live in time. You don't live at the effect of time. And so then you can live high. Now, in terms of dealing with uh, traumas, everybody has traumas. I, I tell people, if you have parents, you have issues. Right. And the parents oh, yeah. smile. And parents smile and they say, well, if you have kids, you have issues. And so... Uh, and people are so amazingly, wonderfully different. I, I can give you an example. We had a woman in training who was 64, and for 50 years she had been deeply depressed. Because at 14, she was a, a, a Canadian Aboriginal. Uh, she uh, was 14. Her family sent her out into the woods to pick berries with a 15-year-old male cousin. Well, during the berry picking, at one point, he came up and felt her breast like that through, through outside her clothing. And then the next day, they were sent berry picking, and he did that again. Those two incidents threw her into a 50-year depression. It's not like she was, you know, gang raped or anything. Right. And, uh, but people differ in what causes them trauma. Well, and so, you know, in the course, she was able to get rid of it. it but she left, and have the 50-year depression of, was gone giving themselves permission to own that, you know? Um, I mean, hardship is totally relative. Like I, I remember I was in Baghdad on my second deployment and we did this really, it's, uh, it's an operation called Operation Arrowhead Ripper in Northern Iraq. And, uh, and it was really dodgy, like a super sketchy week. And I remember I called my wife and she just unloaded about my oldest, who was a baby at the time, just, you know, Levi's doing this and he's doing that and he's into this. He was two at the time. So he's just everywhere. And she stopped about seven minutes in and apologized to me. She's like, this doesn't compare at all to what you went through today. And, and I stopped. I was like, no, no, no. Like, it's relative. Where, <laughs> where you are, that's a rough day. Where I am, this is a rough. Like, yeah. and people so often, like, you know, she probably sees the scope of the world and what what sexual trauma looks like and what is projected on TV and, and what everyone says it is. And so she goes, well, that doesn't count then. And so they don't give themselves permission to deal with it mm. in the regard that it should be, which was a traumatic, you know, sexual assault. Mm -hmm. It's relative. Hardship is relative and it hits your brain. It doesn't matter yeah. if it's being blown up on Tuesday or your two-year-old, you know, pulling everything out of the light sockets. Mm -hmm. It hits your brain the same way. It still sucks the same way. <laughs> yep. Well, I've had the privilege of assisting traumatized as in post-traumatic stress disorder uh, Gulf War veterans uh, and also Vietnam War veterans with the Alpha training. And uh, having had the privilege because of a uh, philanthropist in Canada 
who sent people from his company using his personal funds, uh, after which he said the ROI or return on investment of a biosubrant training is 100. So he'd send somebody for $20,000 and rate the employee that came back worth $2 million to the company. Yeah, that's a pretty solid ROI. That's a pretty solid ROI. And and the guy was, you know, he's not a sloucher. He grew his company with one partner from zero to $2 billion in just two years. Wow. So when when he talks business numbers, people pay attention. Return the ROI on biosovereign training, he said, was 100. But he also sent over 200 Canadian Aboriginals through the training. And because of the residential school system, which we're now learning, I learned when I was running them, that the children were killed uh, uh, by the priests and the nuns who ran those schools. Uh, Georgina Lightning, a filmmaker, did a film I recommend. It's called Older Than America, in which she documents that 50% of the Indian children sent to those schools died there. They're turning up mass graves now, and all of Canada is being shot. And so these people are traumatized to the same degree as returning war veterans. And so we worked with them. And, of course, we gave uh, personality tests, like I've always done in my research, uh, to them before and after and sometimes six months later. And what we found, I've actually published a paper called Reduction of Psychopathologies in a Cohort of Male and Female Canadian Aboriginals. And so this training demonstrably reduced anxiety, paranoia, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, depression, and other psychopathologies. When you change your brainwaves, you change your identity. Frederick Dodson, in his book, Parallel Universes of Self, reports that when you change your identity, your reality changes because identity and reality are synonymous. And so you change your identity and your reality changes and the traumas simply aren't there. Right. And so right. you, you, you'd you ask me in, in a pre-conversation to talk a little bit about traumas. Well, this, to give you an idea, sometimes rather than showing you a table of data and a published scientific article, sometimes a story conveys better, uh, particularly for the non-scientists. Okay, so I'm at uh, now at University of California, San Francisco. I'm assistant research uh, psychologist. Uh, I've gotten my PhD, and I uh, publish in Science, showing that anxiety, both state anxiety and trade anxiety, which is personality, are reduced. Uh, and then I win a large federal grant. I wrote and won and then directed. It was called Anxiety and Aging Intervention with EEG Alpha Feedback. And so upon winning that grant, I was promoted to being an assistant professor of medical psychology within the UCSF psychiatry department. I was the newest, youngest member of the faculty. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, the chairman of the department issued a decree that all the faculty shall assemble, not in Bethlehem, but in a retreat center, uh, where they will talk on stage in front of the entire faculty for 10 minutes about their research. So what was my research? Well, I was training people in alpha and I was giving them personality tests before and after. Well, the granddaddy of all personality tests is called the MMPI. Stands for Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, MMPI. And it 
characterizes these these different psychopathologies, anxiety, paranoia, schizophrenia, depression, mania, social introversion, uh, and, and several others. A psychopathic deviancy is one of them. All the good stuff. All the good stuff, <laughs> right. And so, and 50%, it would, I would, they would fill them out on a form. I would take them to the campus computer center. They would be scanned and would give a printout where 50% is the average, 20% above and below. So 30 to 70 is normal. And I was getting people in the 98 and 99th percentile in schizophrenia, paranoia, anxiety, depression. And then after a week of training, they were in the middle of the normal zone. And so for my 10-minute talk, well, what to do? These are psychiatrists. So let's show them the changes in personality with an instrument that they totally trust and honor and acknowledge right. and use every day. It's like mother's milk to a psychiatrist. And uh, I'm showing pre and post, like one, seven days apart, eight days apart. And uh, the changes were so profound and so startling that I'm only halfway through my talk and two senior bearded members of the department have jumped out of their chair. They're angrily shouting, shaking their fingers, shaking their fist. And what was what were they experiencing? They were experiencing fear. Right. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> was going to disrupt their august profession, but they couldn't admit to fear. It came out as anger. And there they are. I was literally shouted off the stage. Talk about academic freedom. And so that gives you an idea that the results I was getting were beyond unbelievable. They were so far beyond unbelievable that they were terrifying to these professional PhD professors of psychiatry. But I find that so counterintuitive because, I mean, you know, one of the basic things about walking something out, like, you know, you said change your perception, you change your identity the first person you have to convince is yourself. And I think that's a pretty widely accepted thing, particularly when it's like psychology and everything else. So I, it just seems so counterintuitive that they would see hard data that actually supports most of what they're saying, just a different way to get there and be outraged over it. Fearful. Well, that it would disrupt their profession. Yeah. The outrage was a result of them not being able to acknowledge their fear. You see, many psychiatrists at that time, maybe even most, didn't believe that you could change your personality, certainly not in fundamental ways. If you were willing to do 20 years of psychotherapy, they would think, well, you could tinker a little bit at the margins so your ego could fit in better with other egos. But let's not even talk about the possibility of profound and fundamental changes in personality. And that's what I was showing. And that's what scared them. And they couldn't admit to being scared. So they got angry and expressed the anger, shouted me off the stage. I mean, at that point, you don't forget about like explaining <laughs> that you can take control of this and, you know, implement it on purpose. Like, Don't, don't even get into that. So, I mean, but that's incredible. And so, you know, just I think there's so much to it because being able to like optimal performance, problem solving, all this stuff is enhanced. But you know, I love that you you went through the hierarchy there because it's so important to understand that you're going to have to work through a lot of junk, you know, mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of ego that's going to get in your way. There's a lot of you're going to hurt your feelings a lot when you start doing this like self inventory and figure out, OK, maybe I've been a little bit of a liar to myself in a lot of ways. Like mm -hmm. it, it can be an uncomfortable spot. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in seven days to be able to unbox we have a like, box of Kleenex in every chamber because there's always fear. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. 
I, I know so, one thing you said earlier, and I want to kind of double back because it reminded me of our pre-show conversation. You were talking about the individual who came in with a childlike curiosity. Um, and it's something I just remembered us talking about it. And it was kind of a, it was a fun little sidebar, but you know, I think there's a lot to that uh, because he was a very open individual, open, not just to the universe, but to everything. You're a very open individual. Um, I think there's a lot to kind of trying to frame the world because it boxes you in a lot of ways, right? Like what you've never gone up to a six-year-old and said, Hey man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he goes, Oh, I like to be a mid-level accountant. Like, that's not what they say. You know what I mean? And so when they, they're like, I want to walk on the moon. I want to, you know, do this big grandiose thing and dream, dream big. And it, it gets stifled. It gets stifled by this perceived reality that if you're able to, to harness these brainwaves to make them work for you, then you're no longer typecast into this role that society or the world puts you in. Well, let's go back to people are different. So uh, when I had my fourth day where the universe conspired to have me forgotten in the chamber, uh, I had this phenomenal breakthrough. I had experiences, which it took me uh, decades in some cases to understand as I learned about different mystical traditions. I did a very intensive program of meditation in the Yogananda tradition. I was initiated into Kriya Yoga by one of Yogananda's direct disciples. I studied Celtic magic with two thrice masters, one of whom was an archdruid. I learned about the unmanifest and how the contact with the unmanifest gives you enormous powers. And then I learned about Delta waves. Well, so I had this breakthrough on day four. I've never had anyone else have their breakthrough on day four. Day five is the quickest I've ever seen anyone else have that. So when I look at my childhood, I realized that I was, I was pretty sheltered. Uh, the traumas that I had were, in fact, uh, designed to have me withdraw from people in my life, like my father, who were negative influences. So even though I was physically present, I wasn't daddy's boy. I didn't try right. to emulate right. daddy. And so I wouldn't, there wouldn't be a Biosavanon if I had, you know, emulated daddy. And so it puzzled me initially, only about one in, when I first started doing this work, only about one in 20 people would have a profound uh, mystical experience. Working in the university, uh, for 15 years, I doubled that. So it became about one in 10. I learned, for example, what the brainwave pattern of halos were. And uh, so, you know, I know uh, that we don't yet have the technology to do feedback on that pattern, uh, but it basically involves uh, creating a torus in phase space by simultaneously producing theta brainwaves and alpha wave brainwaves, and then simultaneously having them both coherent so you can evolve two coherent frequencies. And if you ask any PhD level electrical engineer, they'll say, well, sure, you get a torus in phase space. Right. And some people right. can see that. Uh, you know, painters have, have typically painted uh, Jesus and angels and the Buddha and Krishna are typically depicted with halos, which are a cross-culturally recognized symbol of spiritual advancement and ethical purity. Well, I know the brainwaves that are needed in order to produce that. And I first found that in a Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, and one of his advanced students, or Dick Baker, they're both now passed, so I can say that. And then seven years later, the Zen master died, and he gave transmission to 
uh, Dick Baker, who became Baker Roshi. And it kind of created a little scandal in the Zen community. Like, why did Roshi give transmission to that guy? Well, I knew why, because I had measured Roshi and 30 of his monks, including Dick Baker, and Dick Baker was the only one who had a little bit of that bimodal coherence pattern. So when uh, Suzuki Roshi was ready to drop his body, this was the only vessel he could pour that consciousness into. And so, you know, I learned things like that. But I, I, I was puzzled why more people didn't have this. When I discovered the importance of forgiveness, uh, suddenly the one in 10 jumped to three out of five. So, you know, that is a big part of it. But in a sense, my goal is and has always been to get as many people as high as possible, as quickly as possible. It's such a great, just what a way to say something. (laughs) (laughs) My goal is and has always been to get as many people as high as possible, as fast as possible. But along the way, I discovered, and we go back to your topic of trauma, that most people have too much emotional trauma and they can't let go. They can't do what they need to do in their brainwaves, in their consciousness to have these experiences. So I took a 20 year detour in my career to develop methods like the mood scales. I wrote the computer program that detects the sigmas, the, the inaccuracies. Uh, you know, it's a truth detector. You say you're not. Angry. That's, see, I was going to say, and I wanted to make sure everyone listening understands. I'll say the words because it's my show and you won't get in trouble for it. You will you will know if someone's bullshitting you real quick. Yeah. Really quick. Yeah. And I think I think Tony even mentioned like he got dinged on a couple answers and he was <laughs> you guys are like, no, dude, like don't fake the funk, try again. He's like, damn it, like, you got him. Well, and he's so beautiful to work with because he has this absolute commitment to truth and authenticity. And to find <laughs> out that he might be a little off in his in own reading of himself was hugely valuable to me. He said afterwards. Biocybernaut Alpha training was one of the most valuable things I've done in my life. Well, he's one of those folks too, and it's it's you know the, it's what you want when you tell someone that instead of them getting more you know introverted to go okay challenge accepted I'm going to open up even more now and try and get to yeah. the crux of this issue. Yeah, and and so I did this twenty year detour in my career to discover literally to invent ways of detecting unconscious motivation and bringing it up into consciousness. Now, I can tell a story on myself because I can see a pattern here. Now, there's a famous French developmental psychologist named Jean Piaget who talks about the four stages of the development of human intelligence. First, up to 18 months is sensory motor. Then you have pre-operational, you have concrete operational. And finally, at age seven, you attain formal operational intelligence. And that's the first time that you can take the perspective of another person. If you take a six-year-old across the table from you, and you give them crayons and paper, and you ask them to draw what you are seeing, they will draw what they're seeing. It cannot, cannot, does not, cannot occur to them that you might have a perspective other than theirs. I remember shortly after my seventh birthday, I was walking through the woods in Menominee, Wisconsin, wondering, do other people see red the same way I do? That question could not occur to somebody under seven. This is why we have a lower age limit of seven for people doing the biocybernaut training. And between seven and 12, they must come with at least one parent or guardian. And so I did this detour in order to develop ways of detecting 
the unconscious and bringing it up. Well, so sensory motor is the first stage. For example, like if you take a a 16-month-old and uh, set them on the floor, and then you take four bowls uh, upside down, and you take a piece of candy that they love, and you put it under one of the bowls and then let them go. They go right to that bowl and eat the candy. But if you do the same thing, put the candy under one of the bowls, and then shake a rattle and distract them for a moment when they look back, They have no idea where the candy is. They know there's candy, but they perform at chance levels in picking up the bowls to find it because they they know, okay, they're pointing. So their consciousness is sensory motor. As long as they're pointing toward the bowl, looking at the bowl, they can go right to it. But if you distract them, they they don't have the concept of middle or left or right bowl. And so I knew early on after I'd had this experience in Joe Camille's lab and I was back at Carnegie Mellon doing my uh, master's degree in psychology, I knew that I'd be working with inner stuff. So I started to train myself uh, to make the inner into the outer. I would take an object like a glass or a vase that might have an interesting internal structure. And I would take an RTV silastic, a flexible plastic, pour it in there and it would harden. Then I would take it out and I would make a reverse cast of that so I could reveal the inner shape of any object, a beautiful vase or whatever. And so at a physical level, I was making the inner into the outer. And then I needed to practice non-destruction. So at the time I worked at the computer center, computer centers did their recording on one inch uh, tape and you know tapes were hundreds of dollars. And uh, if one would go bad, have bad spots, they would throw it away. So I had access to an unlimited amount of this tape. So I, in my big uh, apartment, my kitchen, I hung this tape from the ceiling down to the, almost to the floor and everywhere. So it was like a forest of hanging tape. And then I would walk across the kitchen and look back and I'd see how disrupted the uh, the environment had been by my passage. And I remember quite Chang Kane saying uh, in Kung Fu that when you can walk across rice paper and leave no trace, you will have learned Shaolin priest. So then I would I would time myself, you know, going across the kitchen. And then I would walk across the kitchen in a way where at the same time, but there would be only a minimal disturbance of the environment. Then I took it to a living thing. I got 12 finches and I had them in cages. On, I was living alone on my table and I'd be eating. And if I would like reach for the butter, the, it would startle the finches and they would like that. Feathers right. would go all over <laughs> my food and everything. So then I learned how to move in such a way where I could you know, reach the butter or whatever. And I wouldn't disturb or perturb the environment because I knew that I needed to be able to take myself out of the environment so that the feedback people were getting was just them in right, great right. purity so that it wouldn't be contaminated by, by my presence or even by my thoughts. And so I did this kind of like Piaget going through the stage of the development of intelligence to perfect myself to be able to do this work. Well, it sounds like you nailed it. <laughs> I mean, just just from what you've shared, what I've read about, I mean, the the massive, just the turnaround in a short amount of time, the level of awareness and ownership of everything, like it's amazing stuff. Um, I know, I know you've got some stuff you got to get to, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But tell folks not just where they can find you, but uh, you know, talk a little bit about this summit you've got coming up in October. Oh yes, absolutely, October twenty three to twenty four. We are hosting the second Global Consciousness Summit 
uh, 2.0. Tony Robbins will be speaking again, as will Reverend Dr. Sir Michael Bernard Beckwith from Agape. Uh, Prince Alfred from Liechtenstein uh, will be speaking. And uh, a number of other uh, luminous beings will be there. Uh, Saimon will not be speaking in person, but uh, uh, one of her uh, trusted uh, uh, loyal uh, followers will be speaking uh, about her work. And so it's free uh, online, uh, October 23 and 24. There'll be main stage and second stage. Uh, as I said, it's free. Afterwards, anything that you weren't able to catch live, uh, you can make a donation to uh, our nonprofit, the Integrated Mind Research Institute, and get then a pass that will allow you to go in and uh, access. But I also have a free gift that I can give to all of your viewers, uh, which is a copy, uh, a PDF copy uh, of my book, The Art of Smart Thinking. I'll actually hold it up so you can see it. There it is. Okay. It's available in a bunch of languages, traditional and uh, uh, simplified Chinese. It's Russian, Polish, French, German, Spanish, uh, Italian. Um, and so the English version is up online. And you can get there by going to the BioCybernaut website, which is www.biocybernaut.com slash bonus. And you can download a free copy of The Art of Smart Thinking. And of course, how do you spell biocybernaut? Well, it rhymes with astronaut, ending in N-A-U-T. I'm going to help them out, and I will put that link in the description uh, of the show. Perfect. Copy and paste. Take out the middleman yeah. for them. <laughs> <laughs> right. A, a biocybernaut is to inner space what an astronaut is to outer space. Not is a Greek suffix meaning somebody who goes on an adventure, and that's what people do. The adventure that's what you consciousness. <laughs> On, on a trip with interstellar beings, and they're having sushi. I love it. Now, there is one more thing, if you have another few moments. Sure. A sneak peek into some of the future R&D. Uh, I have been personally exploring a new brainwave called Epsilon. Now, there's not much about Epsilon or Lambda uh, anywhere uh, in the literature. But if you go online... Uh, and you uh, Google Epsilon or Lambda, what you will find is that it is described as uh, Epsilon is very, very, very slow brain rate, below half a hertz, below 0.5 cycles per second. And it is said to characterize advanced yogis living and meditating at high altitudes, where, of course, there's not much oxygen. Well, here in Sedona, we are at uh, 4,360 feet in the, uh, in the training center, first floor of the training center. And so, you know, there, where our average atmospheric pressure is only 87% of what's at sea level. So there is less oxygen here. I had not previously experienced uh, producing lambda in any other location, but it has been showing up sporadically in my brainwaves for about the last two years. And I undertook to do recently a Delta six uh, training for myself and I, so you're lying in this recliner chair. And I began producing these waves that were so slow, they were almost below the ability of our technology to detect it. When I looked at the polygraph afterwards, see these big, huge waves. Now, I shared them all the way across the head. I shared this 
with uh, uh, a, a technical person who said, oh, that's a respiration artifact. You know, you're picking up, you know, from your ears or from your ground, uh, and that's why it's affecting all the channels. And he dismissed it. So uh, I did some more research. I mean, the, the, first of all, there's a state of consciousness associated with it. Absolutely remarkable. Online, you can find uh, where they talk about yogis, advanced yogis at high altitude. And there's a picture of Wim Hof, who you may know is his breathing expert. And right. he's famous for having hiked uh, uh, Mount Everest uh, in shorts and uh, T-shirt. Oh, he's, he developed the reason why F-16 pilots don't pass out. There we go. And, and so there's a picture of him wearing only a, a pair of brown uh, uh, swim trunks, sitting in a half lotus in a snowbank, totally naked from the waist up, and just you know happy as a, as a, you know happy camper. And so um, and he, that's part of talking about this brainwave uh, epsilon. And so. Uh, I did some more research on it, and I was able to produce it only at one site, F4, or at two sites, F4 and T4, frontal and uh, temporal, or at four sites, or at six sites, or at eight sites, which pretty much rules out that there could be a breathing artifact. Sure, yeah. Because it's not, you know, it's not linked to any of the ears or the ground. And so then we also tried an experiment. Okay, if it's yogis at high altitude, you know, we guessed that's probably low oxygen. So we did a, a, a run where I was supplied with oxygen. I had a little mask and a you know head strap around, and it almost abolished the epsilon. Really? There's only a little ripple of it on uh, F4. So uh, this is like leading edge stuff. We don't yet have the ability to do feedback on it. I'm just at the beginning edges of exploring. But I thought it might be fun for you and your viewers to hear a little bit about what's coming down the pike in our R&D efforts. And uh, let me say about the state of consciousness. Um, in order to make alpha, you have to let go of your thoughts. You have to let go of your anxiety. That's healing. It gets rid of anxiety, state anxiety and trade anxiety. For theta, uh, you, you actually have people lie down in recliner chairs, so you can go even deeper and be more peaceful. And delta is even more uh, deep, where you really have to go beyond uh, even the idea of beyond. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate. Gone beyond, gone beyond, beyond, gone beyond even the idea of beyond. Right. And so there I am in, the, you know, doing delta feedback, delta six, and there's this going on in the background. And as I got into it, I went into a deeper state of peacefulness than I ever have in my life before. Now, I can't say that I was peaceful because saying I was peaceful is duality. There's an I and there's peacefulness and there's an I that's experiencing peacefulness. There was no I. There was The only thing that could be said is that peacefulness was Wow. And so I guarantee you, this is not a breathing artifact. So we're on to something. We're on to something really big. And uh, I'm researching it uh, at some point. You know, I have to revise the technology because presently our filters don't go down below half a hertz. And uh, so I've got some ideas about how to do it. And so well, I, won't, I won't disclose those here. But we do have the means of adjusting our hardware and software to be able to do feedback on this. Wow, that's uh, pretty amazing. It's 
It's going to be so much fun. So this is a sneak peek of something coming down the pike in the future. Now, of course, to get there, people have to do alpha and they have to do theta training. And they may also have to do delta um, in order to, because I haven't seen this in other people. And so, you know, I have thousands of hours of feedback chamber, thousands of hours of meditation in the med- uh, Yogananda tradition. Uh, but we know that technology speeds things up. Right, sure so- does. well jim thank you so much for coming on sir i mean it it was everything i thought it would be a more uh absolute pleasure and as that as that stuff continues to unfold for you i mean you know my brain automatically spirals into like massive healing implications and everything else that could be done with that kind of technology so you know let me know i'd love to have you back when that starts to unfold because that's going to be huge and i just appreciate the heck out of your time sir thank you for coming on Thank you for the invitation, and anytime you want, I'll come back. Excellent. Thank you so much, sir. <laughs> All right, folks, there you have it. Didn't I tell you? Fascinating, fascinating human being. Um, seriously, it, it would have been easy for us to do three hours because he is just a wealth of knowledge. He's got stories upon stories upon stories. When you hear all the folks he's worked with and all the research he's done, just, you know, it's definitely a labor of love with this guy. It's not, it's not chasing dollars and cents. He really wants to empower people to, to live as optimally as possible. And you can hear it. I mean, it comes through and how he talks about it. So awesome guest, awesome time. Uh, hope you guys check it out, check out his website. I'm going to put the link in the description to that free book for you guys to download and, you know, it, just check it out. I mean, give it, a, give it a look. Cause it is an awesome, awesome thing he's doing. So I hope you guys enjoyed it and I will talk to you next time.